Christchurch, Newmall, the 19th of January 2020, 6.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking on a Christian response to Christians from other churches and traditions. Okay, so there was uh, once a man who was about to throw himself off a building when another man uh, ran up and pleaded with him to stop. And he said, don't kill yourself. There is so much to live for. Do you believe in God? Yes, said the man, I do. What a coincidence, said the other, so do I. Are you a Jew or a Christian? A Christian, said the man. What a coincidence, said the other, so am I. Are you a Catholic or a Protestant? A Protestant, said the man. What a coincidence, said the other, so am I. Anglican or nonconformist? Anglican, said the man. What a coincidence, said the other, so am I. Evangelical or liberal? Evangelical, said the man. What a coincidence, said the other, so am I. Charismatic or conservative? Charismatic, said the man. What a coincidence, said the other, so am I. Spirit baptised or spirit filled? Spirit baptised, said the man. And at that, the other man went purple with rage, shouted, die, heretic, and pushed him over the edge. <laughs> now that is a story, a rather dodgy story, which we can laugh at, even if we get the serious point that it's trying to make. But what about when we see this historical fact coming up on the screen now? More Christians were martyred by one another in the decades after the Reformation than were killed by the Roman Empire. Now that brings us up pretty short, doesn't it? There's nothing to laugh about there. The Roman Empire put Jesus to death, didn't it? It almost certainly put Peter and Paul to death as well. And of course, those images of Christians being thrown to the lions for the amusement of the crowds in the Roman amphitheatre, that's a strong part of our Christian heritage. But then that uncomfortable fact needs to be repeated. Far more Christians were martyred by other Christians in the years after the Reformation than were ever killed in that famous persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire. And it wasn't just Protestants being burnt by Catholics, people like Queen Mary. There was also Protestants killing Catholics, and there was lots of incidents of Protestants killing other Protestants. And what that shows us is that very often the biggest challenge to Christianity has not been external, it's been internal. And specifically the challenge that we're thinking about this evening. We're thinking, as Tim said, about how we respond to and relate to those Christians from other churches and traditions. Now we may not kill them anymore, at least I hope none of you uh, kill other Christians at any point, but the way that we relate to Christians that are different from us is still a really crucial issue. So what are these other churches and traditions that we're talking about? Well, here are some coming up on the screen of the other churches that exist in this country apart from the Church of England. And most of these churches are represented locally. So, the Roman Catholic Church. This is the oldest Christian church and it's represented locally, you probably already know this, by St Peter's on the Kingston Road, <coughs> but also St Pius at the Triangle. Oh, St Joseph's, big pardon, sorry. Yes, sorry, I did get it right up there, just not down here. 
Uh, and then there's the Baptist Church, represented locally by New Morden Baptist Church, NMBC, once again on the Kingston Road. Then there's the Methodist Church, that's in the middle of the High Street, isn't it? And uh, with that big cross uh, outside it and the cafe as well, uh, New Morden Methodist. But then further up the High Street, beyond the Fountain Roundabout, we've got the United Reform, New Morden United Reform Church. And uh, then further afield, uh, but still in this area, there are the so-called new churches. That's a rather uh, broad term to include organisations like Vineyard, New Frontiers, Hillsong, and the Federation of Independent Evangelical Churches, FIEC. And then, of course, we've got as well the whole host of independent Korean churches in New Morden as well. Now, within all of these churches, there'll be very significant degrees of similarity in what we believe. All of these churches will be united by their affirmation of central Christian truths, such as understanding God as Trinity. And the beliefs that we declare in the creeds, it's more common at Christchurch to recite the creeds at the 11 o'clock service, and some churches recite the creeds, uh, while others do that less commonly, but the truths contained in those ancient creeds of the church, they will be affirmed by all of the churches that I've just covered. So there's a great deal of similarity, a very great amount that we have in common. But there are also significant differences between us and these other churches. Sometimes they're at the level of doctrinal belief. Sometimes they're at the level of the organisation of church life and authority. So the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, has, as you'll probably know, a much uh, more important place for Mary and the saints than a church like Christchurch does. And the Baptists, well, they believe that baptism should only take place when someone's old enough to make a confession of faith. Those are the sort of more obvious uh, differences in those two examples, but less obviously, and perhaps uh, not quite so sort of well known to people, both of those churches, the Roman Catholics and the Baptist Church, will have really quite a different system of church government from the one of Anglican churches like Christchurch. But then there's the additional challenge when we're thinking about this subject of the differences within the Church of England. I think it's probably fair to say that there's more diversity within the Church of England than any of the other churches in Britain. And that tends to be that there's more, mean that there's more division and more disagreement within the Church of England as well. So there's the Anglo-Catholic and Liberal Catholic tradition, represented by Church of England churches such as St James uh, at the end of New Morden, near the A3 roundabout, and St John's Old Morden uh, beyond it. Anglo-Catholic churches tend to put a greater stress on the sacraments. They tend to be at the absolute centre of their worship, particularly the centrality of Holy Communion, or the Eucharist, as they tend to call it. Probably a greater emphasis on its centrality than we have here at Christchurch. And the liberal or the broad church uh, tradition with which the Anglo-Catholic movement has rather morphed today, they take a rather different approach to the Bible to the one that's used here. But even within the evangelical tradition represented by Christchurch, there's considerable diversity. So you'll already know, probably a lot of you, that conservative evangelical churches, such as Emmanuel Wimbledon, will take a very different approach to both women's ministry and mission from that taken here at Christchurch. 
And then there's more charismatic evangelical Anglican churches, such as St. John's, Hampton Wick, where there's a greater emphasis upon ministry of the Holy Spirit through healing, speaking in tongues, and words of knowledge. But of course, the diversity goes even further. It doesn't end outside Christchurch, does it? Within Christchurch, we've got three really very different services at 9.30, 11 o'clock, and 6.30. Not just very different services, but really rather different congregations as well. And it's soon to become four, actually, because we're about to uh, start, at the start of February, a monthly grapevine church service uh, as well. But even within the congregations of these services, so within those gathered here uh, tonight, we won't be identical in our views and perspectives, will we? To plunge straight into a highly contentious subject on homosexuality, for instance, there'll be people here who take what could be called a traditional line and others who take what could be called a revisionist one. And it's the same with a whole host of issues, all the way from divorce through to preferences regarding worship songs. Both within and outside Christchurch, the issue of how we relate to Christians who are different from us is a very relevant one. Well, there are loads of Bible passages which we could have had read out uh, this evening. There are loads of Bible passages uh, that are relevant. And there are so many that I really wasn't quite sure which ones to turn to. So in the end, I decided to start with part of the baptism service. And it's part of the baptism service that gives expression to what the Bible says about how we should relate to our fellow Christians. Because when we have a baptism here at Christchurch, and this will be true uh, in all uh, Church of England baptisms, these words are said in what's known as the welcome. The person uh, who is leading will say there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It will normally say the name of the person who's being welcomed, Fred, by one spirit, we're all baptised into one body. And then everyone together says these words, and they're very significant, and they're really worth paying attention to, and they're firmly biblical. We welcome you into the fellowship of faith. We are children of the same Heavenly Father. We welcome you. The words uh, there are drawn uh, largely from what Paul says in that passage in Ephesians, the passage that was read to us earlier uh, by Alex. And that's where Paul tells the Christians in that city of Ephesus to be completely humble and gentle, to be patient, bearing with one another in love, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then Paul says those words, there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And it's good to go to the heart of this. Be patient, be humble, be gentle, and the rest, well, yeah, okay, but why? Why are we to be those things to other Christians? Whether they're members of our own gathering here or whether they're Christians in other churches, why? There's a simple answer. It's because we are one. Whether we like it or not, we are one. Whether we like it or not, we are brothers and sisters. We are, as the baptism service puts it, children 
of the same Heavenly Father. In other words, they're our siblings. I'm not a huge fan of EastEnders. Anyone here a fan of EastEnders? No one. No one whatsoever. Well, I'm not a huge fan of EastEnders, but I've seen it. I thought there'd be at least one or two, but it doesn't matter in what I'm going to say, because I'm not either. Um, but I've seen enough of EastEnders to see Phil Mitchell using what's quite a catchphrase of his. He'll shrug his shoulders several times, he'll chew, and he'll nod, and he'll say, is family in it? Now, for those who don't speak Cockney, I've translated it there. It's family, isn't it? Now, when Phil Mitchell says this in EastEnders, it's normally in response to someone questioning whether he should support his brother Grant or his cousin Billy or whoever. There were those two girls who were his cousins, I think, as well. His family in it. Can we all say that together? I'm getting like Boris Johnson, aren't I? Can we all say that now? Uh, one, two, three. His family in it. And the truth is, we should have precisely the same response when we think about the question of how we respond to the Christians of other churches and traditions. However much we might see things differently from them, however much we might disagree on, however much we might think the things they do are rather weird and odd and, and, and possibly wrong, the non-negotiable calling to us in response to all of these different Christians, let's have those churches up there, is the Phil Mitchell line, is family in it. Okay. And I really believe that is, you didn't think that Phil Mitchell was a prophet, but, but you know, there you go. <laughs> that is the attitude that we're meant to have. When we see St. James, when we see the Methodist Church, when we see New Morden Baptist, when we see Emmanuel Wimbledon, they're family. Sometimes a strange family. It's rather sad. But actually, we're meant to regard them as fellow members of the same family. And that is the crucial source of all of those other things that we're told to do, to be patient, to be at peace, and so on. And why? Why is this family thing so important? It's because at the heart of Christianity, not a side issue, not an appendix to what it's mainly about, absolutely at the heart of Christianity is God making one single united people. God creating one single united family. Quick quiz, a quick quiz question for you, okay? Which of these letters of St. Paul, and they're the, the central ones really, uh, which of them doesn't have unity as its central message? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Corinthians, Romans, you're right, John, because the answer is none of them. They all have Christian unity as their central theme in very different ways, expressed uh, in a variety of different styles, but all of those letters, and really they are the main letters uh, that Paul writes, and the ones that have been most significant, and in every single one of them, unity is the central theme. Sometimes people haven't always recognised it, but it's true. And why? Why is unity so important? Because to repeat, at the heart of Christianity is the message that God is creating one single people. And in the first century context, the message was that Christianity was the truth 
to which the Roman Empire that I mentioned earlier was the parody. You see, the Roman Empire claimed that under its one emperor, everyone could become one. The Roman Empire was meant to include everyone. But pictures like that one that I showed earlier reveals that that was just a cruel joke. But Christianity, under a very different king, represented the real thing. Christianity claimed to represent the real deal, because at its core was the belief that through Jesus Christ, God had made all those who belonged to him into one family. Not only one family, but as the baptism service says, sons and daughters of the same Heavenly Father. And in Romans, Paul goes further and says, therefore, co-heirs with Christ. So what's true of Jesus becomes true of all those brothers and sisters who belong to God through him. And that's where that famous command that Jesus gave to his disciples to love one another has its place. We're to love each other because that's what family members do. There you go, it's up there again. It's family, in it. And it's a powerful thing to remember. Because members of our families would have to do quite a lot wrong before we'd not want to have a relationship with them, wouldn't they? In fact, I think most of here would hope that it wouldn't be possible, whatever they did, for us to want to not have a relationship with them. And that's precisely the same attitude that we're called to have towards our fellow Christians. However different they may be from us. From whatever tradition or church they come. And loads of things then spring from this understanding that we're one single family. The humility, the gentleness and the patience mentioned in both our reading from Ephesians 4 and the one from Romans 12 is so much easier to show to people in our families. There's a bond there, there's a commitment there that means all of those things are much easier to do than if we don't feel any bond with those people. But both passages also speak of Christians forming one body, don't they? The body of Christ. And a further passage that uses that metaphor is the famous one in 1 Corinthians 12. And it presents honouring the other parts of that body, in other words, fellow Christians, as a vital part of honouring Jesus Christ himself. It indicates that a vital application of being fellow members of the body of Christ is the call to treat our fellow Christians, to treat our fellow family members, like Jesus. If we're co-heirs with Christ, we're to treat the other members of the family in the same way that we would treat Jesus. And to think through uh, the impact that this will make, and as I finish this talk this evening, just have a listen to this story uh, given to, to Nathan Larkin by David Lofman and then passed on to me. I'm getting it third hand. It's a story uh, to really make us think. So there was a monastery which had fallen on very hard times. And it was once a very great monastery and a very great religious order. But over time, it had been reduced to just five monks, the abbot and four others, and all of them were well into their 70s. And the order 
was basically dying. Now, deep in the forest surrounding the monastery was a little hut to which a rabbi from a nearby town would occasionally use for his personal retreats. And the old monks uh, at the monastery had developed a sixth sense about the presence of the rabbi, and they could always tell when he was in the forest. On one such occasion, the abbot, who'd been agonising uh, about the demise of his order, decided that he'd visit the hut and ask the rabbi if he could offer any advice. And the rabbi, well, he welcomed the abbot into his hut. When the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only empathise with his plight and commiserate with him. Yes, the spirit seems to have gone out of the people. It's the same in my town, he said. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. And so it was that the abbot and the rabbi spent time that day talking of deep things. Finally, the time had come for the abbot to leave. The men hugged and the abbot said, it's wonderful that we could meet and talk after all these years, but I failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there no advice at all that you can give me that helped me to save my dying order? I'm sorry, said the rabbi. I'm afraid I haven't got any advice to give. All I can tell you, though, is that the Messiah is one of you. On his return to the monastery, the abbot was joined by the other monks who asked, well, what did the rabbi say? He couldn't help, the abbot replied. We just sat and talked. And as I was leaving, he said that the Messiah is one of us. I've got no idea what he meant. In the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered if there could be any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us. Do you think he meant one of us monks here at the monastery? Well, if he meant one of us, he must surely have been referring to Father Abbot. He's been our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he could have meant Brother Thomas. He's a really holy man. Everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light. Certainly he couldn't have meant Brother Eldred. Eldred gets crotchety at times. But actually, even though he can be a nuisance, when you think about it, Eldred virtually always has a valid point to make. Perhaps the rabbi did mean Brother Eldred, but surely not Brother Philip. He's so passive, a real nobody. But almost magically, Philip does have that knack of appearing at your side just when you need him most. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. But of course, the rabbi wasn't referring to me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet what if he were? What if I am the Messiah? Please, God, not me. I couldn't mean that much to you, could I? As they reflected in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect, on the off chance that one of them might be the Messiah. And on the remotest chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect as well. Because the forest was so beautiful, people still occasionally came to visit the monastery to picnic on its tiny lawn, to walk along its paths and to sit quietly in the chapel. And as they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect 
which seemed to surround each of the elderly monks and which permeated the atmosphere of the whole place. There was something compelling, something empowering about it. Without knowing exactly why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently to visit, to play, and to pray. They began to bring their friends to share this special place, and their friends brought their friends. And in time, some of the younger men who came to visit began to talk more and more with the elderly monks. And after a while, one asked if he could join the order, and then another, and then another. Soon the monastery once again housed a thriving order, and thanks to the rabbi's gift, it became a beacon of peace, love, and hope. Now imagine if that could happen in New Morden because of the way in which we've learnt to make a Christian response to other Christians, particularly to those who are different from us, particularly those from different churches and traditions. It's family in it. That's what we've got to remember. But let's finish, not by saying that, but by saying the words of the baptism service that I spoke out earlier. And I'll do the first bit, and let's join in the second bit. These words are normally used when we welcome someone into uh, the church through baptism, but it's Christian baptism, not Christchurch baptism. When someone's baptised, they're entering God's worldwide church, God's single family. And so as we see those words in bold, let's be praying that that will be the attitude that we take to every single fellow Christian without exception. The attitude that we're children of the same Heavenly Father, that we're part of the same fellowship of faith, that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So let's say these words together now. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. By one Spirit, we're all baptised into one body. We welcome you into the fellowship of faith. We are children of the same Heavenly Father. We welcome you. <laughs>